previously on Hacker Valley Red. They hide behind that feeling that they won't get caught, A, eh? and that what they're doing is the, in the public interest or for the public good. So they see themselves as Robin Hoods. A hacker has to be versatile and resilient. Got to be able to look for that gap all the time. If that doesn't work, come again. If that doesn't work, come again. So it's one of the, it's the most important trait in a hacker. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your team's time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. Welcome back to Hacker Valley Red. This season, we've been exploring the mind of a hacker. And in this episode, we continue on that journey by speaking to Dan Trauner. We talk about the surprising motives of attackers, the future of attacks, and we also sprinkle a bit of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in our conversation. If you're interested in mixing red and blue together and learning more about it, this is the episode for you. Let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Hacker Valley Red, exploring a hacker's mind. And our guest this episode has explored both sides of the fence, the red side of the house and also the blue side of the house. Our guest this episode is Dan Trauner. Dan is the Senior Director of Security at Exonius, also a colleague of ours. Dan, welcome to Hacker Valley Red. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dan Beyond excited to have this conversation because I took a look at your Twitter and the first thing I see is good at breaking things and creatively putting them back together. We're going to get into what that means. But first, for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, let's hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah. So today, as you know, I'm, I'm at Exonius. I run the security team here along with Lenny, who's our CISO. And uh, I focus a lot on the blue side these days. So how do I keep Exonia safe, keep our customer data safe, um, and think a lot about that. Um, but before that, I actually worked at BugCrowd, which is a crowdsourced security vendor. Uh, and at BugCrowd, we basically helped hackers around the world connect with companies and report vulnerabilities. So I got to see uh, sort of both sides of it from that perspective. And I've done a bunch of bug bounty research uh, on my own. I've reported bugs too. definitely like breaking things. So let's talk a little bit about that, breaking things and then putting them back together creatively. Where did that moniker come from? And tell us a little bit of story about that. Sure. The best way to think about it is in order to break something really well, you have to understand how it's built at the lowest possible level. Uh, and I think that's something I think about a lot. When I was younger, I would definitely take things apart. Uh, sometimes I would not be able to put them back together, uh, which annoyed my parents. <laughs> 
But you know, definitely thinking about how to build things, and even from the perspective uh, of software applications, how to write good software, um, those are skills that help you then you know attack something from the opposite side. Uh, so that's how I like to think about things. Uh, you kind of figure out how a system works at a very low level, and then you use that knowledge to understand where it might be weak. So let's break it down a bit. If you were to attack a computer or a device now, what would be some of the things that you think about? How What would be your thought process on like walking the dog and finding something of interest? The concept of a threat model is, is how I often start when I try to figure out where a system might be weak. Um, and this is asking a bunch of questions that help you understand uh, the different sort of techniques uh, or, or ways something can be attacked and approaching it in this very methodical way. So you kind of go through the, all the different common ways things can be attacked. Um, one very common way something can be attacked is to look at sort of the inputs into a system uh, and where inputs can be controlled by people. And in many cases, those people are not people you want to trust, right? <laughs> so if you have a system that has some arbitrary inputs, uh, you have to assume that there are going to be bad people who want to give it bad input. And that's often a very good place to start. When we talk about hacker, there's definitely a spectrum to it. There is the criminal hacker, and then there's the hacker that does hacking for good. And you were the middle person between the researchers and companies that were delivering these disclosures, these bug bounty disclosures. And I'm sure you really saw the minds of many researchers. How did you decipher who were good researchers, researchers that really put a lot of love into their craft? versus the people that were trying to do a cash grab. Could you really give us a story about how that looked from your perspective? That's a very interesting uh, thing to think about because uh, there were researchers who I think would go very, very deep into one subject. Um, that's something that I actually struggle struggle uh, with myself. I think I, I can get bored when I when I do that. But the advantage of going really, really deep into something is um, you, you can get to a point where you're pretty much uh, one of the very few experts in the world even um, on a very niche subject. And then you can apply that knowledge to look at many different companies who use a certain technology. Um, so you might be a researcher that's looking into HTTP2. Uh, and you can really, really break down things all the way at the protocol level and, and then think about that knowledge in the context of how lots of people use this technology. And odds are, uh, if you're you've gone that deep, uh, you're going to find things other researchers won't. And uh, that's probably one of the biggest challenges with a lot of the kind of public bug bounty research. Um, you need to figure out uh, where to look uh, across all the attack surface that companies have, uh, where there are likely to be, to be vulnerabilities, and you want to have an advantage over other people as far as uh, discovering things before they do and, and having that very specialized knowledge. So uh, you're likely to report bugs that aren't duplicates because that was uh, one of the things you'd come across a lot as a researcher. Um, you spend some time, you, you hack on a certain company's stuff, and then you just find a bunch of duplicate bugs. It's always uh, very disheartening. So right. uh, yeah, I would say going deep, um, that was something I always admired and think is a, is a very big strength. And you know, when you say cash grab, it's funny. I can think of plenty of cases where a researcher discovered a technique wrote a script to automate the discovery of that a particular vulnerability and then just applied it at very, very large scale and would find, you know, 50 different instances of the same bug across 50 different companies stuff. And they'd get often paid 50 times. Uh, so it can work out in their favor. Although I think a lot of companies uh, sometimes got frustrated with that kind of, uh, you know, clever behavior. Mm. Has there ever been a moment where you read someone's report and you thought to yourself, 
this person was definitely a criminal before they they turned to the good side. Has there been anything like that or even a report or research that you've just been in awe of at how good they are at their job? Uh, yeah, that that's happened multiple times. So I think, especially when you consider a single company, um, some re- some researchers their method of going deep is to pick a single company, and you know really get to the point where they're not even just thinking about the technology it's used or what assets they can find, uh, especially ones on the internet, uh, but they'll go as far as like looking up the uh, latest news from developers or even following individual developers of a product, uh, looking for. Uh, things those developers are doing or talking about to try and figure out what's being built before it's actually released. Uh, you know, I've seen researchers do things like I'm trying to attend uh, companies' conferences. So a lot of big tech companies now have uh, these, these marketing conferences. Sometimes there'll be developers who talk about unreleased features. And by looking at stuff that's that deep, uh, you'll find people that are able to just uh, really hone in on exactly what is the most common mistake that's made. And the moment the software is accessible to them, uh, they're almost ready, right? They're almost in advance to know exactly what's going, you know, most likely to be wrong. And they'll go after that specifically. So um, I can think of a few researchers. Uh, there was one who did a lot of hacking at Facebook, who was just really amazing at this. I don't want to necessarily call him out by name, but right. he has a blog where he talks about um, hacking Facebook. And it's I'm always in awe at sort of the level of detail of the bugs he finds. It'll be a very specific uh, GraphQL endpoint, a very, very specific query, very specific uh, kind of object. And it's always bleeding edge stuff. Right. There's always like those specialties that you can go in, especially from like an attacker's perspective. There is one uh, bug bounty researcher that we know. He said he always goes after Salesforce related like plugins and add ons and whatnot. And it's pretty great because he gets paid. um, He gets paid very well from that alone. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the motives. We have the cash grab motive to make money, you know, doing a bug bounty or red teaming or even as a criminal hacking into organizations. Has there been any motives that have surprised you outside of like just the monetary aspects? I I would say there are some people that uh, they they will hack in order to make the world a better place. I mean, mm. uh, they might there might be a particular service or organization or um, application or something, you know, that where the stakes for for a bug being there, especially a security bug, could be very high, uh, and might be something that you know, if if you're a person and you believe in an organization or you believe in, uh, you know, a certain problem in the world being solved by software, making that software better is is certainly a, a worthy cause. So I've I've seen quite a bit of that, uh, and that includes people who will do hacking and then uh, donate the money they make from bounties, which is very interesting. With Everything that we've been talking about during this season, we've been really focused on the mind of the hacker or really the offensive side of security. And so you've seen both sides. I'd be curious to see that because of that unique position you were in to see all this research, to communicate with all these companies, I'm sure that puts you in a really rare position to do defense. I'd be curious, what is that perspective that you think you have that many people don't because of your experience that you had? One thing I think about a lot these days is sort of the value of, of communication and relationship building um, in this community. So uh, if you set a good example as far as how you uh, interact with researchers, um, you know how open you are with them, uh, those things end up paying dividends down the road. And certainly um, having a reputation for being a company that's easy to work with and that's very constructive and very hacker friendly, uh, that ends up just uh, being a huge advantage, right? You end up with 
uh, people around the world who know that if they report something to you, you're going to have their back. Something I worked on um, while I was at BugCrowd was starting something called Disclose.io, uh, which is an organization that uh, has developed terms to make it easy to create legally complete language that is related to good faith security research. So I'm a huge believer that, you know, most of the situations I've seen where things have gone wrong in this world are because of just bad communication, uh, bad expectation setting. Um, and you'd be surprised, I mean, how many people will uh, open up or be helpful or or do things that, you know, not even just about money, right? They might be doing things again because they just respect uh, you and respect your company. Um, and so that is uh, the often something that's missed, I would say. A lot of companies will... Uh, start a vulnerability disclosure program. They want to uh, accept uh, vulnerabilities from people, but they don't get the communication right. They don't kind of think about building long-term relationships. And that's where I've seen you know companies sort of have issues in the past. So seeing all of this from the bug crowd perspective now to being senior director at Axonius from a security perspective, what is the general theme that keeps on popping up? Looking at large organizations and startups, is there a big difference in the themes and security risks that pop up? Or is there something that really shows up no matter the size or the type of organization? That's a very good question. I would say there are some basic threats that are going to be present for almost all companies. And those are the ones that are, at this point, kind of commodity, right? So stuff like password stuffing, Everyone's going to get hit by that. And it's not because any one company is being targeted. It's just because it's so easy to automate that at scale. Uh, the, abil- the availability of uh, passwords from previous breaches and the fact that you know people are people and they're going to keep reusing passwords. That should motivate some of the early stage controls you set up at a company. So stuff like corporate password managers, one path you could go, uh, certainly implementing single sign-on uh, and enforcing MFA. Those are the types of things that I think everyone has to do, and all companies are going to deal with those threats. I think past that, you know, you, you do need to consider your own threat model. So not all companies have access to the same data. Not all companies have the same type of customer. You obviously have you know, B2B companies, B2C companies. And it's very important to think about you know, who your adversary is and what they're after and, and what the stakes are um, before you even decide what particular defensive techniques to apply, because they don't, they're not, not necessarily one size fits all. I don't mean to de- derail this entire conversation, but I got to ask you about this. Your pinned tweet is you just took some friends out for some pizza and paid entirely with Bitcoin the date 2014. Tell us about that story and how you feel about it today. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I will lead with uh, I am not uh, crypto rich, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I know that that I I really you know it's one of those things like everyone else who who knew about Bitcoin or, or anything like this that long ago. That's the first thought is like, wow, you must be worth a lot of money. No, I, I think you know this was uh, me going out on on a limb. I went to a, a liberal arts school, and there weren't a lot of computer science minded people. And and certainly um, in the entire four years uh, at college, I think I had one lecture in one class about security. Um, so I ended up going down the security road without a lot of formal training. Um, but because I was surrounded by people who were uh, thinking about stuff like um, writing, for example, or um, studying history or studying different cultures, um, I did a lot of that. And as a result, most of the the stuff that was very technologically uh, deep with stuff I kind of did on the side, or I, I found the couple other people at the school who were interested in this stuff. So yeah, that was something I was interested in pretty early. Bought a little bit, not enough, of course, uh, kept some, <laughs> sold some. But I did take friends out for pizza, and I, I do have the receipt somewhere. I will say it is not a 
Uh, it's a very expensive pizza and beer meal. <laughs> oh my gosh. This this pizza company, they must be like the richest ever now. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to also jump in on is future tech, right? I think like from your perspective, you might have a bird's eye view into the future. You've even done a degree in liberal arts, it sounds like, which gives you a lot of auxiliary skills and ways of thinking. What is your stance on the future of the hacker? Like, do you think that certain types of attacks are going to start to evolve? Or what is your stance and opinion on that type of thing? I would say there, there's two things that come up a lot uh, when I hear people talk about the future of hacking. Um, one is that, you know, hackers are going to be automated out of a job. And believe it or not, I've, I've heard that or I've heard people talk <laughs> about, you know, there's AI and it's going to be really good at this. So in my experience, I think there is a component of this that is going to be driven by humans pretty much forever. Um, because as we build more advanced systems, um, as we make the inputs more complicated and, and you know do really weird things like create smart contracts on a blockchain, these systems are going to have novel ways of being attacked. And I think there's not going to be a good enough way, at least for a very long time, of automating this. So I think there is going to be a human component. So that is something I, I think about quite a bit. And then as far as technology, you know, I mentioned smart contracts, but if you look at some of the vulnerabilities that exist because of technology like smart contracts and how those systems are designed and how there's sort of this built-in uh, incentive model where if, if one of those contracts is broken and you can just steal hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a pretty big incentive. And I look out for kind of these bleeding edge technologies where there's a very big gap in skills. Not enough people, I think, are doing security for stuff like smart contracts. Mm -hmm. And um, as new technologies appear, there's always going to be a co cohort of people that um, very quickly find the you know worst possible weaknesses and uh, build stuff up. But I have to say, I think uh, the fact that we're going to be, uh, you know, humans are going to be involved in this for a long time does give me a lot of hope. I think this is why I'm in security. Um, it's something I, I really enjoy. So let's put the red cap on for a second. And when you look at the crypto space, when you look at the NFT space, and you look at criminals, criminal hackers that are looking to make as much money as humanly possible, what would you start to look at from an attacker perspective in order to do some of that damage? Well, you know, the, the best property for crypto as far as a black hat's concerned is um, it's this weird uh, magic money that can only be sent one way. There's no intermediary who can stop the payment or, you know, change something, I mean, except for in some very uh, weird edge cases. For the most part, it is this kind of uh, decentralized system that is where, where once you steal the money, it's gone. Um, and now I think if you look at more uh, traditional protections around the technology that is used to safeguard the money. Um, you look at stuff like uh, people who design uh, crypto systems. Um, some of the crypto systems are novel and have bugs in them, or they try and do you know things that are very creative, uh, but ultimately end up being weak. So I think you know most of the attacks you see in crypto are, are the things that work very well in other areas, stuff like phishing. Um, the amount of phishing that I receive because actually I bought a Ledger hardware wallet a long time ago. Um, Ledger got hacked. It was their marketing site. And so, you know, my name is associated with a, uh, you know, buying this crypto hardware wallet. So um, I've had all kinds of crazy things happen. I've had not only emails and text messages saying, hey, this is Ledger support and we need you to give us your uh, seed phrase, which would, you know, recover my private keys. Um, people have sent like, you know, fake hardware wallets. I didn't get one myself. Um, I've heard stories of people who, to their address, got e like sent a Ledger or a potentially a tampered with ledger um, with uh, that was already initialized, right? So the seed phrase is known by the attacker. Um, so these are not new techniques, right? You're still talking phishing. It's just uh, 
using the pretext that is relevant to crypto. Uh, but I think we're going to see uh, more and more attacks that are novel. So I think the smart car- contract ones are uh, the most interesting. Uh, most recently, I don't remember the name of the company. Uh, they had a sort of complicated uh, multi-chain solution where the smart contract basically had a vulnerability that allowed someone to steal around $600 million. And they they actually returned some of the money. It was kind of a weird situation where they like returned the money, but then the company let the the hacker keep some some money as a bounty. Definitely a little weird. Not, not the most traditional um, sort of consulting gig. Uh, but I think as far as crypto, that's the most interesting thing. It's just, it is this one-way... Uh, transfer of value. And as long as you're able to trick someone into initiating a transfer or doing this initial sort of process, um, the rest of it can't be stopped. So that's a very valuable property. It almost reminds me of like what you're describing. Like it's based off of a, of an older technique, but it's just with a different spin to different users and and maybe even different technology. It's like phishing almost. I've always wondered, like, how do we reduce that that noise? And how do we reduce the opportunity for someone falling under an attack like that? Chris and I always like to talk about, can you automate everything? Do you think there's a way to automate that very basic type of attack where it's like social engineering meets light technology? Well, as far as automating the attack, I think that's how uh, most attackers do stuff like phishing. It's just this mass thing where they hope that 0.1% of people will click the link in reality, it's probably a higher percent than that, but that's you know 0.1% <laughs> of a very big number is still a very big number. Um, and with crypto, that can add up to a lot of value. And as far as defending, though, um, this is a very difficult area. The reason attackers continue to use stuff like phishing is because uh, there isn't really a defense against someone you know just not doing this psychologically because people are people. Um, so I struggle with this, and I think every company does. Most of the solutions I've seen to defend against phishing uh, revolve around education. There are some interesting technology-related uh, uh, attempts to, to fix things, maybe warning the users more prominently or acting as some sort of uh, you know middleman where you're like either part of the mail gateway and you're trying to detect phishing that way. But at the end of the day, um, you're, you're going to be able to reach employees, right? If you start doing stuff like uh, contacting employees via their personal phone numbers, well, those are outside the scope of, uh, of corporate controls uh, for, mo- for most companies. And that means, you know, that's it. The person just has to be uh, knowledgeable enough to understand when something might be phishing. Uh, and so the best defense there is just to teach everyone to be sort of politely paranoid. Just, you know, be always be a little bit skeptical of things, not to a degree that's unhealthy, but make sure your default is to, you know, verify before you actually trust someone. What's a story that you have that you love to tell, whether it's on the blue side or on the red side, just a story that would make someone sit and think, wow, that was pretty interesting and ingenious. I mean, one of my favorite areas in general, I think, is just honeypots and and deception and trying to figure out, well, if if you were an attacker, what would you do, right? And how would you act? And then um, what can you do as a defender that an attacker is very likely to end up kind of falling for, but it's not because they're a bad attacker. It's because they just have no way of knowing that you set up uh, something that's basically a trap. So related to Bitcoin, this was a a fun story. I was in a a coffee shop actually in Mountain View, California. I I was in San Francisco and in the Bay Area for a while um, before moving to New York. I overheard someone, this was way back, you know, around the, the time of that, that uh, pizza meal a little bit later. Uh, I heard someone say, hey, you know, um, what if we just put Bitcoin private keys all over the place, right? Like put a uh, private key like on your router, put one on the server. 
and figure that attackers, when they're on your server, they've compromised it. Um, their script might just look for things that look like Bitcoin private keys and just steal the money, right? It's like leaving a $20 bill just on the table. Um, at some point, someone's probably going to take it. And then uh, because you can tell with Bitcoin when uh, Bitcoins have moved, it's pretty easy to say, well, if those Bitcoins ever move, that means like, you know, someone took the money off the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, I was just sitting there sipping coffee and I overheard this. And I was like, wow, that's actually a pretty interesting idea. Uh, and so I started doing this and I, I started leaving small amounts of Bitcoin uh, at the time. You know, we're talking a few dollars, um, but something that's enough that a, a script is likely to, uh, to steal it. And so doing research on how a lot of the scripted uh, Bitcoin attacks work, because there were definitely bots out there that would just try and compromise machines that were on the Internet. And then once they were compromised, they would just steal Bitcoin. A lot of them were programmed not to take money below a certain threshold because you'd think, well, if it's like a few cents, that's not going to add up to that much. But if there's like 10 or $20 and you, you do that a few times, that will add up quickly. So um, most of these scripts that I saw were stealing uh, amounts above a certain threshold and I would leave those amounts all over the place. And um, I thought that was a very clever honeypot technique. So um, I never ended up catching like any sort of major compromise that <laughs> way, um, but it worked. And it was so, it was one of those kind of brain dead ideas. And I know I didn't come up with it, but um, I used uh, similar techniques later on um, while working at other companies as far as setting up honeypots uh, for stuff like AWS. So you have like a set of AWS keys that have no permissions. Yep. You purposely leave them in a place that attackers are likely to look. And the attacker has no way of knowing what the keys do unless they make an API call to try and figure that out. And the moment they do that, you can just say, hey, these keys are you know used for nothing. And looks like it just someone just made an API call to use them for something. There's probably an attacker. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. Our very first sponsor was Things Canary. Love the stuff that they're doing. Canaries are really the future of, of detection, in my opinion. And would love to hear a little bit about why you're such a puzzle lover. What kind of puzzles are you into and how did you get into that? Uh, I, I don't know. I think puzzles are, uh, it's a pretty generic term, right? Uh, I, I think I just like challenges. And anytime someone gives me some kind of challenge, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, something practical or something uh, really dumb, that's just going to waste my time. I'll get really into it just because uh, I, I like, you know, thinking in creative ways. I like figuring out, especially in the security context, um, what are ways that most people aren't going to think about this? So if someone hands me something and says, here's how you're supposed to use it, uh, my first thought is, okay, that's what you want. That's how you want me to use it. But how could I use it in a different way? So I don't know. I uh, I tend to like word games. Actually, I, I like Scrabble a lot. That's something I definitely enjoy. If I if I ever was you know had the motivation to play uh, any game competitively, it might be that. But certainly, it's just fun to think about sort of uh, you know clever ways to optimize things. And and back at at college, actually, um, I took a a writing seminar. We had a required number of writing classes. And one of them was about uh, writing about puzzles and games. So there was a famous columnist in Scientific American named Martin Gardner. And he used to write about uh, pretty complicated puzzles and games or things that you'd know, like, you know, Monopoly or Scrabble or something like that. And he would try and explain the optimal strategy to a very wide audience. So I think that's something I enjoy a lot is just uh, taking kind of a complicated problem, trying to simplify it or make it more abstract, and then trying to see how I can just, you know, systematically... Um, work at it. So honestly, it could be anything. I think uh, I just, I just enjoy working on, uh, you know, kind of anything I call a puzzle, I guess. Mm, so let's take that and let's make some knowledge for folks out there. There's someone that's listening to this podcast. They've been listening to the season. They're interested in the red side and they're on the blue side, or maybe they're on the red side and they're interested in the blue side. And there's a little bit that's lost in translation. 
How would you simplify the relationship between the red and the blue teams so that they can protect their organization more effectively? You know, I think the the difference between the red team and the blue team, um, there, there is this this kind of cat and mouse game of uh, one side, you know, trying to develop certain techniques that the other side can't detect and, and going back and forth. Certainly, I've never worked at a very large company where I've, I've been in a situation where there's a very uh, sort of big dedicated red team. Um, most of the places that I've personally experienced had a, a mix or had people that would kind of switch off hats, right? You have a, a security team that does everything. And there are times we'd we'd be much more on the red side and thinking that way. Other times we'd be much more on the blue side. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think each side has to look at the other side's cutting edge techniques and, and kind of understand how they got there. So um, if you're a blue team practitioner, you want to understand, you know, how would you pivot around a Windows environment? Well, you know, going to uh, sort of the cutting edge stuff uh, for doing that as far as, as open source tools, I'm um, looking at conference talks that you know, talk about techniques for doing this in, in modern, uh, modern, modern architected environments. That will help you really understand, well, what was the thought process to arrive at this particular set of tools or techniques? And, you know, I think the best people on either side, right, they can then extend that a little bit and then think about it from their perspective. So in that example, you're the blue teamer, you see that there are particular tools that are very common in, in pen testing, like Windows AD type environments today. Uh, you can figure out, well, the previous tools uh, had these limitations. The new tools don't have those limitations. And if stuff continues to involve in that direction, then we're going to end up at this third place. And then as a defender, I can think, well, how might I start to defend against those things that aren't quite happening very commonly, but are likely going to be uh, happening eventually and, and exactly vice versa, right? So uh, attackers have to come up with um, really clever ways of, of doing things, and that's going to be something that you can only really do a good job at if you look, uh, take a pretty deep dive into what's you know the, the evolution of the defensive side. Absolutely, Dan. Thank you so much for taking the time to chop it up with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great things that you're doing in this world of cybersecurity, what are the best ways that people can do that? Uh, I'm not very active on social media, but you can certainly <laughs> follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, just I'm just uh, Dan Trauner there. Or you could just email me too. I'm just dan at yesihack.com. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to drop that in the show notes for everyone to stay up to date with you and all that you got going on. Thanks again for joining us on Hacker Valley Red, Dan, and we'll see everyone next time. Thank you. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.